We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Afghanistan facing total collapse as Biden refuses to release central bank assets. Quote, if the Afghan economy is not resuscitated, the severity of the current humanitarian crisis will only deepen with dire consequences for life and limb of ordinary Afghans, warned one aid group. What's behind this U.S. action and who will be held accountable for these preventable deaths? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's the host of the podcast, The Left is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always good to be back. So international aid groups are warning that Afghanistan is on the brink of complete collapse as the Biden administration and European governments refuse to release the war-torn nation's central bank reserves, depriving the economy of critical critical funds as millions face poverty and starvation. Uh, James, do you see this as a as a, a backhanded way of trying to allow for the development of a circumstance for the United States to go back into Afghanistan? Well, I don't know about back into Afghanistan. I don't think that I don't know that there's a popular will for that, but I do think that we're seeing like we see everywhere else, right? Any country that wins, quote unquote, with the United States, whether it's Venezuela doesn't elect their, you know, puppet president, Iran doesn't take whatever deal they try and shove down their throat, they will try and, you know, Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan happen to be being punished for living there and winning. You know, the U.S. couldn't afford this occupation anymore. So now the only thing left to do is completely lock them out of the global market as a way to punish them and destroy the country, which normally is aimed at regime change. But I don't think there's any goal of regime change even possible within Afghanistan because we spent 20 years trying to do that and the same people came back. You know, the interesting thing here is that a big one of the big huge issue here for a country like Afghanistan is um, to have the finances, the money to buy food. And Joe Biden has like seven, eight billion dollars of their money and refuses to get uh, number one. He's giving half of it away. And number two, refuses to give it back to the people in Afghanistan. There's not even a solid reason why there's not like a well, there's something they did. There's just they're not getting it. So the U.S is at the, um, the, really, the two worst humanitarian disasters on earth right now are in Yemen and Afghanistan, and the United States' hand is all over both of them. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And the money, I mean, we see this all the time, whether it's the UK refusing to give back Venezuelan gold or uh, Ashraf Ghani running out of Afghanistan with bags of money. Um this has always been a punishment where it's if you're not a puppet, we won't give your cash back. And to first to give half of this money to 9-11 victims or whatever is ridiculous because the Taliban didn't do 9-11. Afghanistan, the Afghan people didn't do 9-11. We know who did it, and they're helping create the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, Saudi Arabia. You know, And I think that freezing funds like this is now just a very common tool to – Unfortunately, a lot of these places have to keep their money in Western banks or they're forced to in the case of an occupation. And the U.S. is going to weaponize this more and more as more places try and pull away from our economic, you know, our economic influence. But I don't see what the gain this does for Afghanistan. I think this makes a place more dangerous than it would have been had we just allowed the Taliban to take over. It's not that the Taliban are, you know, schoolboys or anything. 
but I think this is an alternative that would be better than complete lawlessness. And in order to keep it from being completely lawless, the Taliban needs some money to maintain infrastructure, and we just will not let that happen. We are, again, punishing them for winning. You know, you mentioned you don't see the U.S. will for the United States going back into Afghanistan, and I agree with you, but I don't know that that in and of itself is a reason for the United States not to try to create a circumstance to justify further engagement in the so-called war on terror. I'll just make that point. Here's one of the ironies that I see in your saying that, you know, the United States could no longer afford its engagement in uh, in Afghanistan. The irony to me is one of the reasons why the U.S. went into Afghanistan in the first place was to try to make Afghanistan Russia's Vietnam. And the United States winds up getting bogged down for 23, 25 years, a couple trillion dollars, and we have absolutely nothing other than uh, a negative bank account to show for it. Yeah, it was a longer Vietnam than our Vietnam. <laughs> there you go. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. There isn't much to show for it, and I think that's that's always the embarrassment with the U.S. Right? They don't like coming up empty-handed. Whether it's an ally or a nemesis or a country they occupy, they don't like coming up empty-handed. They don't like having twenty years. And again, a, a voting populace which has clearly rejected this. You know, as far as Trump's sort of isolationism in the campaigns and stuff like that. And Biden actually pulling out, I think, was pretty popular among average people, not the media class for sure, but the average people. And I think that the U.S., as far as the leadership goes and the media class goes, they don't like seeing us leave empty-handed. They don't like seeing us lose. And again, especially with Ukraine and everything like that, people have blamed the incidents of Ukraine on Joe Biden showing weakness in Afghanistan and the Middle East or whatever. Um, They don't want to see the U.S. back down because they think the moment we back down, there's somebody bigger and worse waiting to come for us. But there's nobody on the planet that really fits that description unless you think China's coming for us, which I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, yeah. And and if you look right now, what's happening, the neocons in Washington, D.C. are the most dangerous people on Earth and probably some of the most dangerous people that have ever inhabited this Earth in that, you know, number one, they're recklessly risking nuclear war. But look at their policies. Their policies are about to turn clearly are about to turn the European continent into an impoverished dystopian wasteland based on the sanctions. We're not going to be real far behind, but we're heading for a recession thanks to their uh, uh, thanks to their policies. They're doing it in Yemen. They're doing it in Afghanistan. So our the people uh, and then add um, uh, Venezuela just recovering. Cuba is struggling as a result of our policies. Syria went through the dirty war for years. When you look at the impoverishment and disaster that the, that the neocons in Washington, D.C. have reached worldwide and that are coming home now to revisit us in the EU, it is stunning to consider how these people could still be in power. Yeah, it is fascinating. I think that people talk about, you know, the Great Reset, and I think that kind of happened already in the 80s, the financialization of the economy, right? And since then, people have suffered under these dirty wars, these sanctions, and all types of things all all along the Global South. Everywhere in the Global South has suffered from some type of U.S. intervention, some type of scarcity, some type of, you know, chaos caused by us. And I think as you're seeing capital running out of markets to extort, running out of... Pre- pressure points to put 
you know, to exert on, you're seeing the effects of the globalized economy finally start to come to the actual empire's metropole itself. You know, these are factors that the rest of the world has been dealing with since we have been in charge. Either they played the game or they lost out. And now that we're not making the rules of the game anymore, we're starting to lose out. And I think that for a long time, the United States has felt safe because they don't feel the effects of anything. I mean, the war on terror, even that is, it's all borrowed money. You know, it's not like we saw that necessarily happening to us here, but now with things like the supply chain being broken and half of, you know, Europe's wheat suddenly not available and things like that. And gas is another thing. You know, um, I think that we're finally seeing the results of our economy worldwide come home. And I, I don't think the United States people of the United States are going to be very happy with it. The Europeans already aren't happy with it. And I'd say they haven't been for a good decade or so. Another irony here to me is, and Garland mentioned Yemen, and we're now talking about Afghanistan, is that these are two problems, as Garland said, not only created by the United States, but could now very easily be solved by the United States. And it's that either unwillingness or it's the inability to see the very simple solution here that it's the problem in Yemen is easier to solve than the problem in Afghanistan because uh, natural famine is, is something you can't you can't prevent, but you can provide the sustenance to enable the people affected by this to be able to withstand the crisis, and at the end of the day, you make more friends than enemies. Yeah, I mean, Yemen, we could stop it tomorrow if we stop giving the Saudis everything they need. Exactly. But Afghanistan, I think that, yeah, there's no, what move do we have to be humanitarian? You know, what motivation do we have to be humanitarian at this point? The United States. Oh, I have the answer to that question. They're called human beings. What? The people are yeah, human beings. I mean, we have that motivation. We do. <laughs> right. But our leaders don't, you know, and because I, I don't think they see there's any benefit in it for them because they don't want. Say they do this and what? Well, because well, Raytheon, Raytheon and the other military equipment manufacturers, they don't make blankets, they don't make bottled water, and they don't make other foodstuffs that would be very beneficial in helping people make it through right. make it through famine. And, and to what? Put us in good standing with the world again? You know, we don't care. We never, we've never cared about what the world thinks of us. And I don't think that that's going to change now. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as terrible as it is to say, the American people don't think about Afghans that often and what we did there, even though it was 20 years. People don't reflect on it. And uh, the U.S., I don't think they care if they have international goodwill because we've truly never really had it before, at least not, com you know, completely, whether it was the Cold War, maybe for like a brief minute afterwards. And then everybody started to realize what globalized capitalism looked like. But I don't think we're, we're interested in developing goodwill with anyone unless, you know, when we get very desperate, maybe we go to Iran and talk to them about getting your oil or Venezuela. But we're not interested in goodwill for goodwill's sake, because that doesn't have a monetary value to it. Like you said, it doesn't benefit Raytheon. It doesn't benefit Boeing. Nobody gets any payout from delivering aid and looking like we may have an altruistic bone in our body, like, as we say we do all the time. I think uh, the nature of empire is uh, narcissistic and psychopathic, and there's no empathy anywhere. Uh, real quick, we got about a minute and a half. I do think that this reordering of the global economics, if we get through this okay, will set up a situation where a lot of these other countries then have options and the U.S. won't be able to punish people with sanctions. 
Yeah, I think so too. I think that um, as far as it goes, China is going to be the one to come up. You know, we saw the uh, shift in Saudi Arabia deciding to value some oil trades in Yuan. Um, we see Russia kind of really leaning into going with China as far as a separate economic system. And I think that we're going to see a rise of that more because it's, people are going to de-dollarize, I suppose. And I think it's going to be gradual, but it's going to place us not at a subpar level, but we're going to be on the level with other nations. We're going to be equals whether we'd like to or not. And, you know, as we get out here, you mentioned uh, or we mentioned Raytheon and, and Boeing. But there is Cargill. There is Archer's Daniel Midland. There is agribusiness in this country, the agribusiness could boom incredibly in trying to help fill this void, whether it be in Afghanistan, whether it be in Yemen. But unfortunately, I guess their lobbies aren't strong, aren't as strong as uh, as the military industrial complex and agriculture industrial complex. Maybe is what I guess is what we need for this. I would J- say they want subsidies to do anything, so they, they probably expect well, sure. Those. Sure. J- James Carey, they, uh, well, we subsidize the military-industrial complex. Why not subsidize food for the world? James Carey, I got to get out. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all.